Well, thank you so much, John, for uh, leading us in songs of redemption. That last song is all about why we're going to be singing in heaven, because our Redeemer who redeemed us is everything, means everything to us. Let's open our Bibles to uh, Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. You may be confronted uh, maybe at lunch, maybe this afternoon if you're out in the cancer walk or someone you know tomorrow says, hey, aren't you one of those who went to church? What did you learn in church yesterday or today if it's today they're talking to you? You should be able to sum up everything we're going to look at this morning with one word, and it's the word redemption. Okay, so I'm going to practice. I'm seeing you tomorrow at work, and I'll say, hey, what did you learn in church yesterday? Good, you'll just bowl them over, because most people can't even remember what the service was about. I'm talking about, you know, it's just, it just all kind of runs together. This morning, we're looking solely at one doctrine in the Bible. It's the doctrine we're going to sing about in heaven. It's the doctrine that, that wells up in our hearts because we know it's true. And it's the doctrine, by the way, that we find ourselves first talking about when we get to heaven. That's what Revelation 5 is about. But in a moment, we're going to read it. This morning, as we open to this ninth verse, we're analyzing the words of the very first song that we see ourselves singing in heaven. Uh, we send our children off to, to different camps, and sometimes when they come home from camp, they come back with a DVD. And the DVD is capturing the weekend camp. And you plug that in, and everyone sits in the living room, and they're all intently watching. And they'll go, oh, there they are. Who are we looking for? The one in our family. We just can't wait to see them in the context of camp. When you open the book of Revelation, it's a video. It is a beautiful graphic description, starting in chapter 4, of heaven. And so we're intently watching the video, and verse 9 is the first time we see ourselves in the picture. And the first time any of us get to see ourselves in the future, in heaven, what are we doing? We're singing about, what's that word we're studying? Redemption. Redemption's big. Redemption is very important. We who were slaves to sin, we who were born lost sinners, are purchased by Jesus Christ. And so we finally get to be in his presence, seeing him. And all that keeps coming back to us is the wonder that we're redeemed, that we are purchased, that we are forgiven. The God who so loved the world that he gave his son to die on a cross, and the son who shed his blood to pay the price of our sins is what redemption is all about. In fact, the ninth verse of Revelation 5 could be shortened down to a phrase, redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. In fact, there's a song by that title, and that is exactly the theme of what we're going to be singing in heaven, that I'm redeemed. And redemption means that I was in debt, that I was a slave, that I was hopelessly trapped, and that someone came, paid the price, delivered me, and now owns me. In fact, that's what Paul constantly talked about in his life. He says, I'm bought at a price. I belong to the Lord. Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Revelation 5, 9. We see ourselves the way we will be, singing the new song 
of our worthy Redeemer. Let's all stand. And as we stand, I'm going to read these words, and I want you to feel the wonder of what it's going to be like someday to actually burst out into the song of the redeemed and look up at our Redeemer and say, you're worthy, you were slain for me. Revelation 5, verse 9, and they sang a new song, saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Redeemed, how we should love to proclaim that. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, I pray that you'd impress deeply on our hearts what redemption means, the implications personally in each of our lives. First of all, either we're redeemed or we're not redeemed. Either we have received by faith that payment or we are still outstanding in our debt of sin to you. So either we're redeemed or we're not. And if we're redeemed, we should love to proclaim the wonders, the, the personal implications of what that means in our everyday lives. Teach us and work in us to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As you're seated, redemption is so important. That's what we sing about as soon as we're given an opportunity to respond in heaven. The first song of heaven is a song of redemption. So it's a big doctrine. Redemption is so big that we need to fully understand it. And this morning, it would be wonderful if, if we could just make a conscious choice for the next few moments to be redemption-focused. In other words, to, to take our capacity to think on a topic and to choose to think on the topic of redemption. And I'm going to talk about redemption from every angle, but, but stick with me and, and see if the, the depth can just wash over your heart and mind because the, the goal of this is that, that redemption becomes the theme, the focus of how we look at why we're here on earth and, and how that can transform us on a daily basis. The only way for us to really focus upon understanding redemption is to go back to ground zero, the place where a redemption took place. Now, although it says in the Bible that Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, and even though it says that we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world, all of those things really have no bearing on us because we are temporal. And the place where the redeeming work and the saving work was accomplished was in time. And that's what we're going to look at as we turn with me, if you want to, to John chapter 19. Back to the gospel by John. This is the ground zero of redemption. This is where the event took place. Now remember, Jesus redeemed us, and we call that his atoning sacrifice. And so many people talk about the atonement. The atonement is the payment of Christ's blood as, as an offering to pay the debt for our sins. And so you've probably heard of the idea of an unlimited atonement or a limited atonement. Well, what the Bible says is this. The only limit on the atoning sacrifice we're going to read about in John 19, the only limit the Bible talks about, not theologians, but the Bible, God himself says the only limit is faith. If you never by faith have that atonement applied, then you do not partake of it. But the atoning death of Christ on the cross, he said, was that he was the Lamb of God 
to take away the sin of the world. So it is an unlimited atonement in its accomplishment, but it's only applied to those who receive it by faith. So this morning, make sure you're not missing out on the work we're looking at because you've never reached out by faith and received the one who died on that cross. But look what's happening in chapter 19, verse 30. Um, John is, is there standing at the cross. Do you remember the events? I mean, it's not so long ago. We were just doing this on Good Friday and, uh, and Easter Sunday. But Jesus was nailed to the cross at 9 a.m. He hung there for three hours. At high noon, God blotted out the sun, and it was a total blackness. It was not an eclipse. Eclipse lasts for a few minutes. This darkness was supernatural. Three hours total darkness. And so John never left the cross. He's standing there with Mary and some of the other women, and he is recording what is happening. And in chapter 19, verse 30, we're seeing the climactic end of Christ hanging on the cross as the redeeming Lamb of God as he's hanging there and, and finishing the work of redemption. John is looking up at him through the dark. And I mean, it's been three long hours. Jesus has been crying out in pain, and, and finally, he says, I thirst. And in fact, most of these words of Christ from the cross, I thirst, in, in Greek is one word, dipso. And the next thing he says is, it is finished, that we're going to read in this verse, is also one word in Greek, tetelestai. In other words, Jesus was so agonizing, he couldn't talk a lot. He usually uttered one word, sentences, you know, dipso, I thirst, or I am thirsting. To Telestai, it is finished. But John is listening, and in the dark, he looks up, and as Jesus says, I thirst, verse 30 says, he received the sour wine. And when he received that, all he wanted was a little bit of liquid in order to, to take his parched, dry mouth so he could loudly say something. And so after he got this sour wine, verse 30 tells us, he said, Actually, he cried out one word, and the Greek word is tetelestai, which in English has three English words, it is finished. Jesus explained with one word the doctrine of redemption. The doctrine of redemption is that he finished the complete payment necessary for all sins of any person who's ever lived to be forgiven. Now, he said the, the way is coming to him. He said salvation is a person. This is life eternal. You may know me. It's so much more than just praying certain words. It's entering into a life-transforming relationship. But what he said is the way open is finished. I've paid the price. And so those three English words is one Greek word, and tetelestai means it is finished. Now, you say, uh-huh, I can read English, so what? Well, the soldiers that were standing at the foot of the cross witnessing all this, think about the, the primary interpretation of Scripture is what did the people that the word came to understand at that moment? That's what God was communicating. What was God saying at the cross? Well, for a Roman soldier to be standing at the foot of a cross looking up at a convicted criminal who had his, his crime on a, a board over his head, which, by the way, the only mistake in all of the movies and everything is Jesus is not the only one that had 
a sign. Everybody that got crucified, what they were being crucified was on a sign. The other two were down for being thieves or robbers. He was being crucified for being a king. But everybody had a sign. And those soldiers heard him say, the payment for the crime has been paid in full. See, that's what tetelestai means. I want you to do a, a little word study with me. Jesus declared from the cross when he said it is finished, or tetelestai, he declared to God his Father that the price of salvation was paid. That the debt of the John 129 sin, not plural, not sins, we all have individual sins. Jesus made one payment that was sufficient in the one sacrifice to cover the, to, to, you know what Charles Haddon, Calvinist to the core, six-point Calvinist Spurgeon said. I mean, there's nobody more Calvinistic than Spurgeon. You know what he said? He said, Jesus paid for the totality of the mass of the sin of the world. He said, all the sin of all the world, Jesus paid for. Because there was only one sacrifice that would be offered. And he made that sacrifice sufficient for everyone who would ever live, past, present, and into the future. How do they receive that? How does it become effective in their life? Whoever calls on the name of the Lord. It's the gospel of salvation. That's why you and I can go out and we can be dispensers of reconciliation. We can tell people how to know Jesus Christ. How they can know that their debt has been paid in full. Well, this word that Jesus gasped from the cross was a word very familiar to everybody in New Testament times. Number one, this word tetelestai was written by a judge. When someone would come before a magistrate and was convicted of a crime, there was a certificate that was filled out in front of the judge, and it would be written down every crime that that criminal had committed. And that criminal had to, they'd turn the paper around, and the criminal would sign his name. He would say, I'm guilty of what that says. And he had to stand there in front of the judge, in front of all the, the magistrates, and he would say, yes, that's what I did. And he would sign it. And that certificate is what he carried with him to prison. It was attached to the door of his prison, and it stayed there until whatever time it said his penalty was, was expired. And then the door was opened. He was given his certificate back. He would walk back in front of the judge, lay it in front of him. The judge would ask did he serve his time? They'd say yes. And the judge would write one word with the official Roman seal across his document. Same word Jesus said. Paid in full to Telestai. So that's the first way. Everybody who had ever seen, you know, any type of, of judicial proceedings had heard the word to Telestai. Secondly, slaves. You could become a slave if you're a prisoner of war. You could become a slave if you're a criminal. Or you could become a slave if you were in debt over your head and couldn't pay it back. You were sold into slavery. With each of these, there was a certificate, kind of like the title to a car. Every slave had a little title. And that title says they belong to this master. And what it would say is they belong for life, or they belong until they pay back their debt, or they belong until whatever. And that title was the certificate. That, that was the ownership certificate. And when a slave was sold in the market, you could be sold to another master or your family and friends could gather up money and could buy you 
out of slavery. Someone that loved you could come, and, and, and if the master would present you for sale, you would be in the marketplace, and, and the, the magistrate would say, who would pay for this one? And, and the price is so-and-so. And if you paid it, the little title certificate for that slave was laid in front of the magistrate, and across the certificate was written, paid in full, Greek word, to telestai. And so that slave could go anywhere, and people would say, aren't you a slave? And he'd pull out a certificate and say, no. I'm paid in full. I am totally free. I'm liberated. A payment was made. I am not a slave anymore. Those are the two concepts that everybody standing anywhere near the cross that heard Jesus say, to tell us die, they knew that either he was saying a criminal's debt had just been paid or he said a slave's price had just been offered. And you know what? Both were true. If you think about what redemption means, the two, two historic usages of this word help us understand the implication to each of us who are believers and have become followers of Christ. When Jesus declared paid in full, you know what he was saying? He was saying that every time our accuser, the devil, remember Satan? The devil is the slanderer. Diabolos is his Greek name. Do you know what that means? He comes. God allows him to come in front of the throne. We see him repeatedly in the book of 1 Kings and Job and also in Revelation. We find Satan allowed to come in in front of God's throne. He has appointments, and, and Satan gets an appointment. I don't know how they make him, but he gets one. And he gets in front of the throne. And you know what he does when he's there? He goes, and he starts pointing at Christians. He goes, oh, they just sinned. Oh. They just sin. Do you know what happens every time Satan accuses us of sinning? Jesus, who's standing at the right hand of the Father, goes, to tell us, die, paid in full, paid in full, paid in full, paid in full, paid in full. See, that's what it means. It means Satan can no longer accuse us. Jesus says, I paid for that. You have to deal with me. That sin is on me. Their sin is on me. The record of their sin, the penalty of their sin is on me. That's what redemption means. Jesus paid for all of our sins. That's the first truth. You know what the second truth is? When we confess our sins. Now, you know, 1 John 1, 9. You all know 1 John right? 1, 9, right? It says, if we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful and just to forgive them. In English, it sounds like an exchange. It sounds like every time we get around to saying, Lord, I'm sorry, I, I confess I've sinned, the Lord goes, okay, I forgive you. That's, and, and we operate that way. Most people operate that way with others. You know, If they get around to saying they're sorry, we'll forgive them. God doesn't operate that way. 1 John 1, 9 is written in a very precise language. It's called Greek. Greek has more tenses than you can shake a stick at. And you can tell whether something happened once in the past, many times in the past. You can tell if something happened in the past and it continued until the near past. And it's not continuing anymore. Or something started in the past and it's going to go to a point in the future. Or something is never going to end. And the same is true for future events and present events. It has so many tenses. Do you know what the tenses of 1 John 1, 9 are? If we are present, active, indicative, that means constantly characterized by confessing our sins. We are supposed to be continuously confessing our sins. It's kind of like a snowblower. As you go through life, you're just going, oh, you know? It's just constant confession of sins. Do you know what God does? He is faithful and just 
It's not present active indicative. It's not, I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you. It's, I already have once and for all forgiven you for all of it. You know what Jesus says when we confess our sins? Paid in full already. Long ago. Paid in full. Paid in full. Every time we confess our sins, Jesus is saying, I've already paid that sin in its entirety. So to telestai means paid in full. And redemption, the payment involves the blood of Jesus Christ when he died on the cross to pay the purchase price for our sin. All of them. Past, present, future. Do you see why we're singing about this in heaven? We still can't believe that he did that. Well, if any portion of salvation could be ranked as more vital than any other, redemption would be at the top of the list. Now, when I, many years ago, many years ago, I used to be a youth pastor. In fact, I so enjoyed uh, introducing our new youth pastor, uh, Justin. But I used to use my Bible and my pen as an illustration. Where's my pen? Right here of sin and of the doctrine of salvation. What I do is, um, in fact, you know when I used to really do this? As a youth pastor, I used to take my kids, I was a youth pastor at Bob Jones, so I had a brand new crop of about 150 kids, every boys, every year, that were dormitory high school students. And I would take them, and our highlight of the year was we'd go climb a mountain of the Appalachians. And so I did this every year for five years, so I had it down cold. And before the first trip, I drove to the mountain site, and I investigated the trail up to make sure no one would lose their life. And then I looked to see if there was any other way to the top of the mountain. And it was called Table Rock, and it was all cliffs and ledges and stuff. And I found that if you kind of held on to the trash can and swung yourself over the fence and dropped down a little bit, there was a ledge. And then it went straight to the top, and it took about mm, 15 minutes of pretty intense climbing. But if you went on the trail, it took two and a half hours about and you were just blood red sweating, you know, because it was constant switchbacks and running and the heat. And so I would get the bus. I actually was a bus driver to a public school bus driver in those days. And, and I roared up the yellow bus and opened the door. And I said, okay, the first one to the top gets a one-pound steak. Go. And they would knock each other over and they'd push and they'd run and start up that trail. And I'd wait till the last teenager was out of sight. And I would, as they were leaving, I was sipping my Coke in the driver's seat. And then I'd climb over the fence and down the ledge and... 12 to 14 minutes later, I'd be sitting at the top and I'd read my Bible and I'd have my Coke sitting there. And when they came huffing and puffing up, some of them would make it at two hours, sweating and red-faced. I'd be drinking, totally unsweaty, and I'd say, where have you guys been? They thought I could fly. I mean, they, no one saw me on the trail. And year after year, I did that for five years in a row. But when they were there, I was in such awe that they would listen to anything I said. And I said, I'm going to give you the doctrine of salvation. I call it the big three. I said, here it is. The pen represents you, and, and my thumb holding you down is you being a slave to sin. And, and what it means in the Bible that you're dead means you are unable to get out. You and I were born sinners. We don't we, we don't become sinners because we did something bad. We do something bad because we were born that way. See, the government hasn't figured that out. They think if you give them a little better environment and, you know, nicer surroundings that they'll act better. No, people act wickedly because they're dead. They're incapable of not sinning. We can't stop sinning. That's how we were born. And so I would hold my pen down like that, and they would watch, and I'd say, 
try and get it out. And they were so weak from climbing, they couldn't, they pull on it. And I'd say, okay. I said, now let me show you doctrine number one, redemption. I said, Jesus comes down, releases the hold sin has on us, and takes us out of the prison. That's redemption. So we're, we're, we're still here. We're just redeemed sinners. But I said, the second doctrine clicks in of salvation. First, breaking sin's hold, purchasing us out of slave market of sin. Justification is when Jesus lifts us from our, our condemned standing and says, I justify you. I make you righteous in my sight. That instant, by the way, this happens all, it's called the order salutis. It, it all happens all at once. Redemption, justification. That's why a Christian is a saint. The instant sin is broken and Jesus purchases them because he justifies us. And a justified person is a saint while they're alive. You say, whoa. Yeah, you don't have to be exhumed from your grave and hauled to Rome to become a saint after 60 or 100 or 50 years. You don't have to have someone vote on it. If you're born again, the instant you call on the name of the Lord, you're redeemed and justified. But that's not the end of the story. We don't act like saints sometimes, right? And that process God has is that our position matches our behavior is called sanctification. So the God who releases us from the hold of sin and justifies us begins to sanctify us. What's that? It's pulling us closer and closer to him. And we resist and he pulls us closer. And we resist and he keeps pulling us. And there's three levels of sanctification. There is ultimate sanctification, which means we're going to be free from the presence of sin forever in heaven, but that hasn't happened yet. There is progressive sanctification, and that's this, this pulling us closer and closer and closer. And then there's the doctrine of sanctification that it says in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, the very God of peace will sanctify us completely. That means God is working at every part of our life. Once he gets a hold of us, there's no part of us that he's not working on. But the progressive is he's pulling us closer and closer. So those are the three big doctrines of Redemption. So you say, well, wait a minute. How do we get there? Let's go back to Revelation 4. I want to set the frame before we go this morning to understand how redemption fits in the grand scheme of eternity. Revelation chapter 4, that's what we're studying, the throne room of the universe. And what we did is we found when we got to chapter 4, it's focusing on worship. And what we saw is the first element, holiness, is the atmosphere of true biblical worship. That's why the only people that are going to be in heaven are the ones that are redeemed, that have been set free from sin and justified. Because the only people who can worship God are the redeemed. And so holiness is the, the frame we see in the first seven verses, the atmosphere of heaven. Secondly, we saw in verse 8, 9, and 10 that true biblical worship always is in response to God's holiness. You see, the seraphim, the cherubim, what do they say in verses 8, 9, and 10? They say, holy, holy, holy. And as soon as they say that, there's a response. And, and all of the redeemed bow down. And by the time we get to chapter 5, verse 9, we begin singing of our Redeemer. Thirdly, look at verse 11. 
It's amazing the front row of worshipers and the third element of biblical worship is it's always focused on God. The 24 closest people to the throne of God, the 24 elders, as soon as God's holiness is declared, they fall on their faces. Why? They say, we don't want to be seen. The same reason that this, the cherubim cover their faces. They say, it's not about us. God, you're the focus. It's not us that's the focus. You are the focus of our worship. That's the third element. Biblical worship always is focused on God. Then, where we are this morning, verses 1 through 9 of chapter 5, true biblical worship, the fourth element is this, centers on the cross of Christ's redeeming sacrifice. Centers. You know, when you... uh, um, it's really neat nowadays when you're doing stuff online, they have these vectors where it'll show you exactly where the middle of the page is. Like if you're making, uh, putting objects in a, in, a, in a frame, it'll go, whoop, you're in the middle. It's telling you when you're square right on the center. Do you know what the target, the crosshairs of worship is? It centers on the redeeming work of Christ's cross. Jesus saying it's finished, it's paid in full, I paid the price. So this morning, how do you apply that? So far, what we've done is we've just talked about a doctrine. And and what you should ask yourself is, so what? So what? What does that mean? Well, because you asked that, number one, here's the first application. Redemption should always remind us of how unworthy we are of the price that Christ paid. See, the, the redeemed in heaven fall on their faces because they're, they're not saying, you really got a good deal when you got me. Boy, hey, you're pretty fortunate to have gotten me. No, that attitude, that pride, that arrogance, that self-righteousness. It's kind of like the Pharisee that came to the temple and the publican was right there next to him and the Pharisee said, God, I, I give you all this stuff. Aren't you glad I'm not like him? And he pointed at the publican, the, the sinner. And, and the, the poor publican, it says, couldn't even lift his face. He says, I'm not worthy of any mercy or grace. That's the attitude of heaven. You know what the Bible says? The Pharisee was not justified, and the sinner, the publican, was. Because redemption, number one, always reminds us we're not worthy of this. Uh, you all know John Newton, the great slave captain, Do you remember when he wrote his testimony, what he said? Think in your minds. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved someone you're really fortunate to get, me. Is that what it says? Do you remember the words? That saved a what? Wretch. Now, did you know that is is being dropped from hymn books? Uh, We were just singing, and can it be? And, and it says, for such a worm as I. Boy, that's out of the hymn books already. The, the publishers won't put that in. No one wants to think they're unworthy. That's why we live in an age that everybody gets a trophy. We don't want anybody left out. Everybody's a winner. And, and it's coming into the church. You know what the Bible says? No, there's one winner, one captain, one Lord, one redeemer, one person that triumphed. And we are unworthy to be a part Number one. Number two, second application. God has provided the only way of redemption. And I want you to turn with me to Colossians because I was working this morning. Colossians chapter 2. I was working this morning in my personal uh, private devotional time just sitting there with my Bible and I was thinking about the fact 
I talk to myself. That's why I shut the door, because I don't want anybody to hear. I says, wow. I says, you're going to be actually at St. Peter's Piazza in a month. What are you going to do there? I was talking to myself. And I was thinking about, what do you do when you're in front of the biggest monument to the fact that people can earn their way to heaven by works, by sacraments, by doing good? What, and so immediately I was drawn to right here. Look at Colossians 2. Because I've been studying this all week and I thought, God has provided the only way of redemption. And, and that's what I'm going to talk about when we stand there right in the center of that piazza. But look at this. Redemption is about the debt of sin God piled up. Uh, our, the, the, the reckoning of God has piled up the entire record of every time I have ever sinned. He knows everything I've ever thought, everything I've ever said, everything I haven't done, everything I should have done, and everything I did wrong. He's got it all written down, a record of it. You know, we, we don't think anything of that the banking companies can keep track of everything and that the, the savings and stock and everything can keep track of everything. If humans can keep track of billions of transactions all over the world, can you imagine what God can keep track of? God has a video with feelings and sight and sound and everything of everything we've ever done. And look what it says in Colossians 2, because Paul was talking about that. He was, he was taking the people of Colossae from their everyday world to the presence of God and back, and he was teaching them a lesson. This is what he said. And you, being dead in your trespasses. Remember, dead? What does that mean? You are under the thumb of your sin. You are totally enslaved to it. So you, being dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, Paul calls salvation, and so does God in Ezekiel, having a circumcised heart. It means that God reaches down and cuts away the hardness of our heart that forces us to sin, and he gives us a soft, responsive heart. We get a heart transplant. So he said, before you were saved, you were dead in your trespasses, you had an uncircumcisedness uh, of your flesh, that means you had a hard heart, and here's salvation, he made alive together with him having forgiven you all trespasses. Now look at verse four, 14. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and has taken it out of the way, nailed it, having nailed it to the cross. What is he talking about? This is what he's talking about. He's talking about the list of sins. What Satan wants to do is he wants to point at our list of sins and say, look at all the sins and trespasses they've done. And that's why Jesus steps in front of us. That's what our advocate means. He steps in front of us before the throne, and he says, I've paid for those sins. It's paid in full. And, and what was formerly, look what he's called, verse 14, the handwriting of requirements. Now, what did the Colossians think about when Paul said that? The word that's used is the same concept I told you about in the criminal justice system. The list of the crimes a criminal had done was written out by the judge, and most often as the person was going to jail or to be crucified, they would hang that around their neck, and they would be walking toward the prison or they'd walk to the cross, and they would walk with this handwriting of all the ordinances they had broken what was convicting them. And you know what the scriptures say? All the people knew that that's what criminal justice meant in the first century world, that you had to carry around this list of everything you'd done wrong. 
And gradually people realized that in the sight of God, when God looked at them, he saw this list of everything they'd done wrong. And Paul says, here's the good news. Verse 14, Jesus on the cross wiped out the handwriting of requirements against us that was contrary to us, that would bar us from heaven. He took it out of the way. How? What does the end of the verse say? He nailed it to the cross. You see what redemption is? It's all my sins nailed to the cross of Christ. And it's gone. The record is gone. Well, what's the third application? We're all convicted debtors to God. The legal imagery of verse 13 is all of us prior to salvation are carrying around this big long list of our sins. We're all debtors. In fact, once we, um, we sent a, a uh, pastor to speak to a group of students and the pastor said, every one of you in this room, he said, I want to ask you a question. He said, how many of you were born hopelessly lost hell-bound sinners, totally unable to, to have any hope of going to heaven, raise your hand. And out of 100 kids, two of them raised their hands. He said, well, then I have good news for the rest of you. You can have all your sins forgiven. And do you know what they said? We're elect. We, we're going to heaven. We're elect. He said, no. You were born lost. In God's records, he knows that you are going to come in faith, but you were born lost, and until you believe and cry out to Christ, you will not be saved. So you don't know if you're elect until you get saved. And see, that's what we need to tell people, that we are walking, every one of us are walking around totally convicted of being desperate, convicts in God's sight. And Jesus Christ, number three, declares to all convicted sinners Application number four, redemption means Christ died to pay the debt of my sin. You know what that means? Uh, the ABCs of salvation. You ever heard of the ABCs? A means you agree with God. You look at that record of all the sins that's hanging around your neck and say, I did them all. I'm guilty. Kind of like David. When Nathan pointed him, he says, yes, I'm guilty. Do you know why a lot of people will never make it to heaven? Because they won't confess and agree with God that they're sinners. They go, I'm not as bad as them. Not as bad as them. And God says, you're bad enough to go to hell forever. And my son paid the exchange price to take your place on the cross. And the message of the gospel is that Jesus Christ paid the complete price. Look, look at what verse 14 says. He blotted out the whole record of our sins. That's why it says in John 19 verse 30 that we started with, it is finished. The price is paid. Did you know what religion says? Religion says, God paid for some of it, you pay for the rest. And you got to go through life hoping you can balance out the scales, hoping you'll do enough good. And if you don't do enough good, you're going to have to go somewhere to burn off all the excess sin, and you're going to have to have people praying for you. And then maybe, after a certain number of centuries, you might make it to heaven. That's not what the Bible says. You know what the Bible says? She, Jesus paid one sacrifice forever. And all who come to Christ... We who confess our sins, God says, you're already forgiven. Number five, when Jesus died, the fifth application is this, sin's debt was paid in full. What does that mean? What does it mean? How is that applying to me? Number one, the first personal impact of the gift of redemption is this, because I'm redeemed, Jesus destroyed the record of my sins. 
It says in Romans 3.24, we're justified freely. Uh, you know, on a computer that, that you can have your words all over the page, but then if you, if you uh, highlight them all and hit one of the three justifying uh, little symbols, icons, you hit this one, they all jump over and they're justified on the left margin. You hit the middle one and they fill the whole page and they're justified. Or you hit the right one and they're justified to the right-hand margin. You know what justification means? It means to get square with a, a standard, with a, a square, kind of to be plumbed against a, a square line. And justification means that we measure up to God's high standard of righteousness, not because of what we've done. Look what it says, being justified freely by his grace, Romans 3.24. Freely, no earning involved, totally by grace. Secondly, the second impact is, because I'm redeemed, Jesus is all I need. It says, but of him are you in Christ Jesus, who becomes for us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. Jesus is all I need. It's not like I need to Jesus and then do something. It's Jesus did it all. And I just respond with thanksgiving. That's why we're going to be thanking God in heaven, because Jesus paid it all. Third implication an impact on our life is this. Paul said, Christ bought me from the slave market at a high price, and therefore I belong to God. When someone would go to a marketplace and buy a slave and got the little certificate, took it up to the magistrate, the magistrate would sign it over to them, that slave belonged to that master. Jesus came to us in the slave market of sin. He let us free and took us, and he said, you are my possession. I bought you. And therefore, you become, instead of a slave to sin, you become my slave. Did you know we're called in heaven bond slaves of God? We are forever owned as his servants. But we don't do it out of force. We do it because we love him. And we do it because he redeemed us. And therefore, Paul said, Christ bought me in the slave market at a high price. I belong to God. Now, there are many other implications. We'll just scroll through these. The fourth one is, because I'm redeemed, my sins are forgiven forever. Ephesians 1, 7. That means every time the devil points at us, Jesus says, paid. That's wonderful to know. The fifth one is, because Christ bought me in redemption, I am God's workmanship. Did you know God bought me? to make me a beautiful piece of his artistic workmanship. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for a purpose. That's good. There's something that each of us can do this morning that no one else can do. We are redeemed, purchased to be his perfection of a workmanship for something only we can do. And you know why David says that... that his life was great. He says, I fulfilled your purpose in my life. David said, you bought me for a reason, and I did what you bought me for. That should be every one of our desires. Number six, uh, it says, because I'm redeemed, Philippians 1, 6, God will finish what he started in me. You know, the Lord's never through with us. I'm reminded of this every time. I walk the halls, and someone will come up and said, I caught you in a mistake this week. I said, only one? You only found one? Did you know God isn't finished with any of us? That God is always at work in our lives? That, that's, that our sanctification is progressive? We should be more Christ-like tomorrow than we were today. More next week than we were. You understand it's progressive. The seventh impact is because I'm redeemed, 
I am set free from any bondage. Did you know I meet people and they're still bound by former sins? Lusts of the flesh, lusts of the eyes, and pride of life. And what they do is they say, no, I'm trapped. I say, you're not trapped. If you're redeemed, Jesus bought you out of there. You just are telling yourself. You're letting your body run the show instead of your spirit. Because I'm redeemed, I am set free from any bondage, Titus 2.14 says. He gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify us. But here's the last reason, we're done. Because I'm redeemed, I will worship the Lord forever. Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Now, let me ask you, what was the service about this morning? And I hope we live and talk like we're glad we're redeemed. I'd like you to stand with me. I'm going to close this in prayer. If you will stand with me. And as we're praying, where did you get, Dan? I want you to start walking up here. I see, where are you, Dan Bowman? Is he here yet? Where? Left. There he is. Come this way, and I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to introduce something special about Dan. Let's bow together as he comes. Father in heaven, redeemed, how we love to proclaim that. We have been redeemed by the blood of your son, the Lamb of God. Redeemed, we're so happy in Jesus, because we're his child forever we are. Oh, Lord, thank you for redemption. Thank you. It's our song in heaven. May it be our lifestyle here on earth. In the name of Jesus, we thank you. Amen.